Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Written by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're going to uh, take a look today at... Um, most of the session is going to be spent on baptism, in fact. And if you recall last week, um, we'd gotten into this chapter called Go Outside and Play, the whole premise being that when you when you mess up the emphasis between internal and external... Now, of course, you could say everything's external, and then you run into a problem. Or you could say everything is internal, and then you run into a problem. Um, but it's also the case that if you get the emphasis wrong, if the, em- if the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, uh, people have a hard time understanding you. It doesn't make sense. And that's true, too, when we put too much emphasis on the internal, especially to the expense of the external. Now, of course, we're talking about these spiritual things, so what would be external. External would be the cross of Jesus. That's something outside of us. His word that comes to us is outside of us. And then the sacraments that he gives, these things are all outside of us. And so we can, um, obviously, and then as we receive them, they come inside of us and they, and they change, um, our hearts and this kind of thing. And they dwell in our hearts. Um, yes, please. Oh yeah, yeah. When so you're in con- you're in common conversation with someone, like, what are you up to today? You know, I went to the laundromat, and then Jesus told me to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I, that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, unless they're going to quote something that's written in red ink in the New Testament, Jesus told me to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of. Oh, did he? What chapter and verse? <laughs> Right. Yeah, usually the Jesus told me to do something um, is like, I really want to do this thing, and I really want you to think that it's so important that the Lord himself said it. Uh, you know, it just kind of comes to a little bit of, well, I mean, not a little. When you diagnose it, when you just diagnose it straight up for what it is, it's just idolatry. It's just turning the human will. Now, do we have to treat every instance of it to... In, as exactly what it is, just all pretenses stripped away. No, not necessarily. We're dealing with people. I think so. I think so. Yeah, and you know, yeah, probably enough on on that point. I think you, yeah, yeah. We want to be careful. You know, I think too. I, we're, we can be critical. God put this on my heart. Well, you know, did he? I I don't know. Um, you say he did. And I think we have to be really careful with that because in that moment, what are we, what are we claiming to do to speak for God? And that's kind of a big deal because, um, in the scriptures, Jeremiah, for example, um, the false prophets, now you don't have to go to seminary to be a false prophet, but the false prophets claim to speak for God when God did not send them and claim to speak the word of the Lord when God had not, in fact, spoken. And so, even just as laity casually as people of Christ casually, we want to be really careful that we don't put ourselves into those shoes of like, hey, God put this on my heart, or God has this message for me to tell you. It's like, does he? Are you willing to stake, you know, are, are you willing to, to stake your reputation, possibly your soul, on the line of um, God, God did indeed send me? God did indeed speak. I mean, as an ex-Lutheran teacher, I was so worried about not saying something proper mm. to my, my students. Yeah. You know, it was something that really concerned me. 
journey. I didn't let it stumble me. I hope God, you know, I mean, no way could I yeah. ever say it perfectly every time. Yeah, why wouldn't why wouldn't we just say this is what's written in the scriptures, or as the scriptures say, or as Christ says in the scriptures? And if not, why wouldn't we just say, um, you know, this is what I think, or this is what I feel, and then make a make a biblical argument, or even just a even just a reasonable or moral argument can work wonders too. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question and comment. So, um, before we get into uh, the section on baptism itself, let's go ahead and begin as we always do with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off on page 126 in the text, and this will serve to kind of reintroduce us to where we're at in the context of the chapter. Up in the left-hand corner, um, we're going to have uh, three quotations of Scripture here, kind of summarizing what we've found so far. So these three bullet points we ended the class last week with. Um, Wolfmuller writes, First we see the promise of forgiveness bound up to water. Now quoting Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you can see how how um, forgiveness of sins is tied by St. Peter. What has happened immediately prior to this statement? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's been poured out upon the church. So Peter is here preaching in the Holy Spirit, um, and quoting, uh, and, and as we quote Acts 2.38, we're quoting this Holy Spirit-inspired sermon of St. Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Which, again, we tend to get hung up on the language of baptism as a technical theological term. Don't. Start with baptism just means washing. Um, in Mark chapter 7, the word um, baptism is used for washing cups and dishes and couches. Baptism just means washing, okay? Now ask yourself in this context of this particular statement of St. Peter, what is being washed away? Dirt from the body? If it's not dirt from the body, what? Obviously sin. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, uh, probably your average five-year-old can grasp. If it's a washing away that comes from God, and it's not a washing away of dirt from your body, what is it? Washing away of sin. And so that's the connection here. Um, may not be obvious to us because we're so used to seeing baptism as a technical term. Um, repent and be washed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. To be washed in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. To be washed in Jesus's, to have our sins washed away, thus to be forgiven. Okay, so it's connected to the water. And then last but not least, of course, Peter mentions, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there we see the connection between this water and the Holy Spirit as well. All right, next, we see the promise of forgiveness in the cup of Jesus' blood. Now quoting from Matthew 26, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So again, scripturally, we can find that language of covenant several places in the New Testament, but 
um, where we're really kind of getting down to defining it, um, that covenant is um, the cross of Jesus and the cup of Jesus, one and the same. So as he sheds his blood on the cross, that blood is poured out for us to drink. Now, this is a, this is a scandalous thing, obviously, because it just kind of sounds to human reason like cannibalism. Um, but it's also scandalous from the Jewish mind because uh, special care was taken in the sacrifices and, and in all the food. You can think of, even today, the idea of kosher, so that all the blood would be drained from the meat. Why? You can't drink the blood. What's the biblical rationale for not drinking the blood? Yeah, the life is in the blood. And so this is what pagans used to do all the time. They still think this way, by the way. Um, but uh, if you drink the blood of something, you're gaining its strength or its power. You can still see this, like in um, there was a clip when we were doing the the, mid -e the Middle Eastern War that I saw when I was um, when I was young, and uh, they had some uh, Islamic folks saying, um, "We will drink our enemy's blood," and you go, "Well, that's disgusting." Um, but then, you, what are they actually saying? We're going to feast on you. We're going to dine on you. Your strength is going to become our strength. Your life force, our life force. We will conquer and simply you, you will end up serving our purposes. And so you can see that same ancient sentiment even present today um, in certain cultures. So you don't, you, you don't be like your pagan neighbors. You don't drink the blood. You don't live by the blood of beasts or any, or your enemies or anything else. Um, the life is in the blood. And so, Great care taken for all this, all this time, you know, well over a, a millennium. Uh, don't drink the blood. The life is in the blood. And then Christ comes and says, take drink, this is my blood. Yeah, so you can see how, how strangely that would have resonated in the ears of his disciples. And yet at the same time, how true. Because for all those years, we were waiting and waiting and waiting for this moment. Um, we live not by the blood of animals or our enemies or anything else, but by the blood of Jesus alone, the Lamb of God. All right, and then he it is he himself who says it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, you're drinking it. You're drinking that same blood um, in a way that's uh, you know incomprehensible to our reason. It's a mystery. But Jesus' words say it, so we believe it. And he's the one that connects forgiveness of sins to his blood and his blood to that cup. Drink of it all of you. All right, and then third, we see the forgiveness of sins put in the mouth of Jesus' disciples. Now, quoting from John 20, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. All right, so we see three physical things. We see forgiveness connected with water. We see forgiveness connected with the bread that is his body and the wine that is his blood specifically. And then we see the um, forgiveness connected with the mouth of his disciples so that even a fellow sinner stands up and forgives our sins um, that very physical act of speaking um, is uh, has forgiveness connected to it, according to Jesus. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And then the same with retaining. All right, so um, just dropping down, we'll give Wolf Miller a few more words, and then we'll jump into baptism. He writes, our desert island Christians would look... Oh, yeah, he had introduced this. Let's skip to the next paragraph. He had introduced this earlier. I just don't want to confuse those who aren't following along in the text. He says, now, the promise of forgiveness is bound up to stuff, specific stuff, water, bread, wine, the body and blood of Jesus, the preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the absolution. These are so important because Jesus has bound up the promise of forgiveness and mercy to these things. The Lutheran Church calls them the means of grace. 
This is the stuff to which Jesus attaches promises. All right, so um, God is gracious toward us. How does he communicate that to us? Um, And another, and and so he does so through his word and sacraments. Um, Another angle on this would be the Holy Spirit creates faith in us. How does he do so? Through the word and sacraments. And so these are called also the means of the Spirit. In fact, if you go studying this phrase in the confessions, Lutheran confessions, you'll find means of the Spirit far more than you'll find means of grace. All right, any questions so far? Otherwise, we're going we're gonna to launch into our focus on baptism. Now, um, we, we've already spent some time with absolution in the previous chapter, so we're going to go into baptism here, and um, then, of course, tangential to that, always infant baptism, and after that, we're going to hit the Lord's Supper, and then we'll have hit all three of these things uh, in some detail here with Pastor Wolfman. Yeah, I just wanted you to comment on the fact that I'm sure you've discussed this many times, how common these elements are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just amazing to me. I mean, there's nothing more common than water. Yeah, where there's and people, there's wine water. Wine and bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where there's people, there's usually wine. <laughs> Eventually. I think even in prison they find a way to make wine. <laughs> so, yeah, wine, wine and bread are ubiquitous, water is ubiquitous. And, um, yeah, and the mouths of Christians are, are virtually ubiquitous. We think it would be the most precious things. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just basic necessities and um, common elements. Yeah, there's multiple uh, homilies coming to my mind right now. I won't preach them all, all to you right now. That's true. We Well, we see Jesus incarnate in lowliness. He comes as a little baby and in poverty and laid in a manger and that kind of thing. And we see his death as one of uh, poverty and lowliness and humiliation and so he continues to come to us in these lowly and humble, yet very common kinds of ways. Um, yeah. And it also requires faith then, doesn't it? That's the other thing. Because, you know, if, if he said, this is my, this bread is my body, and then suddenly the, the bread starts glowing with divine heavenly light, you, you what faith do you really need to go, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's hidden there. So that, you know, think of, um, the antithesis of this is always Eve. Um, because think of Eve looking at the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of the, of good and evil. And she, she does what with her eyes? She sees that it is pleasing and good for food. And of course, God has said, don't, in effect, don't believe your eyes or your senses. This is death. So that requires faith. The commandment in the garden requires faith in God's word to believe over and against what our senses and what the serpent is saying. Now, this just simply gets reversed when it comes to the sacraments, and particularly we can zoom in on the Lord's Supper since the original sin was eating from a tree and thus we're saved from eating from a tree, which hangs from the tree of the cross. Now what do we see? We see the exact, I mean, we see the thing that you would least think is good for food body and blood, and yet hidden therein, and death, and hidden therein, God says, and this is forgiveness, and this is life. So faith is required, and and that's why God also chooses these humble elements, because who would look at water and say, this is a washing away of sins, and this is a, a true new birth 
in of water and spirit, of being born from above. No one would say that. So you look at it with your eye, and your eye says, you just got that from the sink. You know? Or you got it from the river. You got it from the ditch. Um, but of course, when God attaches his word of promise to that water, then faith is required to perceive what's going on. He says all the things he says at baptism. It's a washing of sins. It's a new birth. And then same with the, uh, same with the elements, you know. It's bread. Very frequently, um, it, it would be, uh, women in the congregation who would bake the unleavened bread for communion. You got the flour at Costco. You baked it in your oven. It's just common bread. Um, you got the, you got the wine from the grocery store, from Bevmo. It's just regular wine. But now when you attach the word of God to it, it becomes what he says it is, and that requires faith. And so you can see how faith has a role in all of this too. And anyway, I went off on one of those little homilies. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, any other thoughts? Are we ready to go forward? Let's jump into baptism. So, Wolf Mueller has titled this, What's the Big Deal About Baptism? And of course, off to the left, he's quoting 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism saves you. Wolf Mueller writes, The first time I heard a Lutheran talking about baptism, I balked. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, the covering of Christ, impossible. Baptism is an ordinance of the church where I made a public testimony of my faith. It is a symbol of my death to sin and resurrection to new life. It is the first act of obedience in my Christian life. This is what I was taught in American Christianity, and I believed it. Um, worth, uh, I think worth just having a little fun here. Um, okay, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, is that in the Bible? Well, we just saw it, for example, in Acts 2.38. It's elsewhere, but um, be, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, or, yeah, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, okay, that's, what about salvation? Well, if we look to the left, baptism saves you. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Okay, what about the covering of Christ? Galatians 3.27, do you not know who all of you who have been baptized have put on, like clothing, Christ? Okay, that's in the Bible. So these are all biblical ways of thinking and speaking. All right, baptism is an ordinance in the church. Where's that in the Bible? What's that? Yeah, there is a there is sort of a command to go baptize, but what's the um, what's the ordinance of of um, baptism where it says you must um, you know you, baptism is you fulfilling the law because that's what an ordinance is. Right? Baptism is an act of you fulfilling the new law. That Christ has laid. Where's where's that kind of theology? Nowhere. Nowhere. Okay. What about um, baptism being about me making a public testimony of my faith? Where is that that connection with a public testimony of my faith and baptism? Nowhere. In fact, in many cases, baptisms were done quietly or secretly, or if not. Um, if even if out in the open, like the Ethiopian eunuch, not in such a way where it's like, hey, come over here, everyone. Look, this man is professing his faith. This man is becoming a Christian. No, it wasn't done that way. Okay, what about a symbol of my death to sin? Where does the scripture say that baptism is a symbol of my death to sin? It doesn't. 
Where does baptism say that it is a symbol of my resurrection to new life? Really doesn't. Really doesn't. There, we could, we could kind of make a case that when you're, when you're baptized and immersed and you go all the way under the water, you can kind of make the case that that's like a symbol, a symbolic act of drowning or dying. And then when you're pulled up out, that's kind of, kind of has symbolism of a rising or resurrection. So maybe we could, maybe we could be okay with that. But again, it's just, is this language of symbol in connection with baptism a way that the scriptures themselves speak? No, not really. No. There's nothing that, there's nothing about baptism in the scriptures that talks about it being a symbol. Um, if we're going to infer that it's a symbol in this way or that, fine. Um, but let's just be clear that that's kind of a reflection on the nature of baptism rather than an actual careful diagnosis of what constitutes baptism. You can think, those of you who are familiar with the catechism, you can think that um, of, of that part where, uh, where baptism is described as a, as a kind of sign of being da- daily drowning the old Adam and daily emerging to rise. Okay, So we don't have to reject kind of this idea that it symbolizes or, or get, is a sign of, of these things. We don't have to reject that outright, but we do want to be careful. That's just not the way the scriptures speak. The scriptures speak of it actually doing things. All right, and then what about um, it, it is the first act of obedience in my Christian life? And where do we find that language, that baptism is the, your first act of obedience? It's not there. So again, where we're talking, you know, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable here, but where we're talking about um, Bible-believing churches, but then everything they tell you about baptism isn't in the Bible. It's kind of a problem. And you run into the same thing with the Lord's Supper, of course, Bible-believing churches, but when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, we don't believe that. We insert the word symbolizes. Um, and we do the same with baptism. So you can see how um, Bible-believing churches is kind of, uh, kind of not really the case when it comes to talking about the sacraments. And in this respect, we Lutherans kind of say... <clears throat> Sola Scriptura, you know, we don't need to call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. We do, and we believe every word, and where our reason recoils, we submit our reason to the words and simply assert that they mean what they say they mean. All right, well, let's go a little further then. Um, Here's an experience that resonates with uh, many. Wolfmuller writes, I was baptized as a baby, but by the time my theology had matured in American Christianity, I was certain this baby baptism (laughs) didn't matter at all. Most people who come to this conclusion are quote-unquote re-baptized, but I never was, and this was because I really despised baptism. Whenever someone asked me why I had not been baptized as an adult, I responded, I can demonstrate my faith in better ways than baptism. I continue to be embarrassed at how scornfully I thought of and treated the sacraments, but this scorn is part of the theology of American Christianity. In one way, though, I was right. Baptism is not a particularly compelling public demonstration of our faith, just as bread and wine are not a compelling symbol of Jesus' suffering and death. Could it be that these gifts of the Lord are, in fact, more than symbolic outward works? That is what the Lutherans with whom I was arguing were saying. 
They thought that baptism forgave sins, and I couldn't convince them otherwise. I pulled out my Bible concordance one night to put forth all the Bible passages about baptism. In the New Testament, there are almost 100 verses with a form of the word baptism. Wow! In the New Testament, there are almost 100 verses with a form of the word baptism. Many more teach about baptism without using the word. I looked at them all. How important is baptism in, in the scriptures? I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? And then ask yourself, you know, and th this would be for those who are kind of consider themselves uh, former evangelicals, you know, ask yourself if it has this emphasis in the scriptures, does it have this emphasis in your church, in your theology? That's kind of one of those soft tests. I looked at them all, he says. Many of these verses are historical, especially regarding John the Baptist, but dozens of passages teach what baptism is and uh, what benefits it gives. Every single one of these verses binds up baptism to the gospel. I was shocked. I had a similar experience to Pastor Wolfner, having grown up um, as, a, as a pastor's son in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, I really waited to seminary to decide to try to test and see if the Lutheranism I had been taught was in fact true. And uh, it, because if you're going to, if you're gonna, ever going to second guess it and try to play devil's advocate and try to uh, make sure that you know that what you taught is correct, um, what you were taught is correct, um, what better time? And so I did the same thing. I got out in my little biblical tools and looked at, tried to look at all the verses with baptism. But then a funny thing happens because you realize that Many of the verses talking about baptism are alluding to Old Testament texts about what God did through water. And so you see the connection where Jesus is talking about water and the Spirit with Genesis. And you see St. Paul make the argument that the Old Testament version of, this is 1 Corinthians 10, the Old Testament version of baptism is going through the Red Sea. And then you see that the the priests daily baptize themselves in order to become clean, to minister um, before the before God, and then you see that Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy, and that's referenced also in the New Testament um, by water. And oh, what gosh, what else am I missing? I'm missing a whole bunch of other uh, other um, examples of this. But um, what you find is that baptism is there before the New Testament is there. That God is a God who creates through water, cleanses and instantiates his people, Israel, through water, heals Naaman, heals the consequence of sin through water. God is doing all these things through water before John the Baptist even arrives on the scene. And the New Testament itself begins with water. And again, if you're not thinking biblically, you're just going to go, well, where on earth did John the Baptist get the idea to baptize? Where did baptism come from? Where did this, this, the foundation of the New Testament, the, the forerunner of, of the Messiah, of the Christ, is baptizing? And it's not really until you see the connection with all the Old Testament texts, all the Old Testament actions of God, that then you see the connection. And then similarly, why is the baptism of Jesus so emphasized? 
And why does one of the rarest and strangest things, even in the scriptures, occur at the baptism of Jesus, namely the revelation of the Trinity? What, what is, so biblically, how big of a deal is baptism? It's impossible to, it's impossible to make all the connections. Paul makes the argument that, that baptism is like a circumcision made without hands. Now you're all the way back looking at cir- what circumcision was and did, and you're saying baptism is the new version of that. You see how it's endless? I mean, I literally thought, because we all swim in these American Protestant waters, even though I was raised in the Lutheran Church, I literally thought, I'm going to sit down and, you know, I've given myself the whole afternoon and evening. I'll be able to look at every passage in the scriptures about baptism. Yeah, not even close. You realize that all the scriptures are, in a sense, dripping wet. (laughs) Yeah, they're all about water and what God does in and through water. They're all about baptism. Um, Yeah. And baptism makes you a what? A son, a child. Now think of all the theology of adoption and all the theology of miracle birth and virgin birth and barren birth and becoming sons and heirs. Yeah, you see where I'm going with this. There really is no limit. Yeah, please. I used to always get the question, well, when did you become a Christian? When did you make a profession of faith? There had to be a specific time. And I would always say, no, I was baptized when I was two months old, but that's all I know. Yeah, yeah. God claimed me as his own. And I've made various uh, professions of the faith along the way, and um, some better than others. (laughs) Some, if anyone was watching the evidence of my life, would have seemed hypocritical. Right. Yeah, we make lots of professions of the faith, but that and that is what something that's happened. By the way, I, this just kind of deserves a side comment that when you get rid of baptism, because b- baptism is the work that God does to you. I mean, that's kind of to let the cat out of the bag. When you look at who's doing the doing in holy baptism in terms of Scripture, it's always God doing the doing to His people. So, if you take away this act of God doing the doing, then it's me doing the doing. And then if you take away, since it's, since baptism is me doing the doing, it's not as important as anything else that I'm doing. In fact, if you were to compare it to my act of faith or my profession of the faith, it would have to be less. And so you just end up getting rid of baptism and then you end up getting the anchor of my faith is my profession of faith. So then it necessitates this great big conversion moment. You know, where you gave your life to Jesus. But that's where this theology comes from. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from a rejection of baptism. And then it comes to, okay, well, what are we going to replace it with? Me. And thus, thus then you get the theology of the altar call, this great big dramatic moment where you finally give your life to Jesus and everyone's clapping and cheering and crying. And it's just really meant um, to replace baptism when you're in a communion that doesn't believe in baptism. So that you can see where this theology comes from then. It does not coming from I mean, think of the sinner's prayer. Giving your you know, you've all heard it on the evangelical radio, um, where there's kind of this evangelistic time where at the end of the message the pastor or it's some recording or something, he says, you know, something to the effect of if you'd like to give your life over to Jesus, then pray with me this prayer. And then as soon as the prayer is done, the sinner's prayer is done, it's um, okay, you're in. Get connected with the church. You're now a Christian. Where does this? Where is this in the scriptures? Where is it anywhere in the? Repent and pray the sinner's prayer, and you will be part of the church and receive the Holy Spirit. It's nowhere. 
So all of this theology is once you reject baptism, you've got to have this definitive moment and this definitive experience. So then all of American revivalism and American Christianity is based off building that great big moment of decision where you could look and say, I once was lost, but now I'm saved. I've made this profession, and this is it. Of course, what's the problem that's so common? Well, you make the profession, and you're all on fire for the Lord for, I don't know, six months, or if by reason of strength, nine. And then you start backsliding. And then what? Time for another profession. You let it go a couple years, and then, then you hear an altar call, and it's like, okay, I better go. And so then you just keep stacking up these moments where you've turned to the Lord and really, 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 truly this time given your heart to Jesus. Absolutely. I must have been holding something back last time. And then you just find, if you're honest with yourself, that that repeats, or it repeats enough that you finally get jaded and say, I must be out. This is Christianity driven by me and my decision and my commitment, which if ever there was sandy shifting ground upon which to build, it would be me, I, my resolution. And so baptism replaces all of this as the rock upon which we build because it's something the Lord does to us and it's unchanging and immovable. I can, I can apostatize, but my baptism remains. And when I return, I'm just returning to my baptism, to my identity as God's son with my sins washed away, born again through water and the Spirit into his image. It's something that's done. Um, so it doesn't require me to you know, regularly recommit myself. All right, I thought I saw somebody trying to get a word in edgewise. I have a question. Um, I'm starting to think when Christ called his disciples and said, I'll make you fishers of men, that he's not just referring to the fact that they have been actual fisher men, but it's an allusion to a baptism that he brought the fish out of water and the control of it, it, when he first met them and at the end, after his resurrection, he tells them, you couldn't catch fish, but I'll t- tell you where they will be and you will catch them. And it shows us, too, that uh, God is in control of that baptism. Of- yeah, fishing for fish, what do you do? The whole point is to drag them out of the water. Yeah, fishing for men is exactly the opposite. What's the whole goal? To drag them into the water. <laughs> And then to keep them in the water. That's, uh, was it Tertullian Vicar who said, or I can't remember which church father said kind of famously, little fishes stay in the water <laughs> to his people. Stay in your baptismal grace. Don't go leaping out of. Yeah, so there's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Then when you look at all the uh, different allusions and playful things that the Lord does in his word to remind us of holy baptism. Yeah, yeah I, I would point out also the interesting thing about babies in evangelicalism is they're without sin. Oh, well, we're going to get to uh, babies. Okay. Yeah, we're but, going to get to babies. Okay, it's I'm coming. not that far yet. But no, yeah, yeah. I mean, you go apparently up to the day of your baptism and coming out, you're you're without sin. In that moment, you get sin, and then you repent of it. Yeah, there's a Something. bunch. Yeah, there's a bunch of weird things that happen when you deny quote-unquote, baby baptism. Which, by the way, I mean, think of think of how we're already off on the wrong foot, aren't we? Because we're not paying attention to our language and so we're creating artificial categories. Baby baptism, that goes precisely from when to when. 
when you're two, and then after you're two, you're two years old in one day, and it's no longer a baby baptism. Now it's a toddler baptism. Is there any? Is there such a thing as a geriatric baptism? <laughs> no, it's just baptism, right? And that's that's one of the things we're gonna we want to clarify in our language. There's just baptism. There's no such thing as baby baptism. Just like there's no such thing as geriatric baptism or redheaded baptism or you know male baptism or female baptism. There's just baptism. It's for all people. So. When you create a subcategory of like, well, babies are different. <laughs> now you've got a big problem because you've either got to assert that they're sinless, or the and then and then you get this weird. So it's like you know when you tell a lie when you're a kid, you got to tell another lie to cover your lie and another lie to cover that lie, and it's just a web of lies. Same thing when you mess things up theologically and contradict God's word, you end up with, well, well, babies can't be baptized. Babies aren't. Sinners. Babies are sinners, but they're now saved in this other way. Babies aren't sinners until the age of accountability. Well, what's the age of accountability? I don't think I've reached it yet. <laughs> and then you're bringing in legal concepts. So is the age of accountability 18? If you're accountable when you're seven, can you be tried as an adult? You see what I'm saying? So you, as soon as you, as soon as you get off on this wrong foot, it's like endless tales you've got to tell yourself to try to make your theology work. That's a pretty good sign that your theology is wrong. Yeah. So we're going to be just very simplistic and straightforward that when Jesus says baptize all nations, he means all nations. He doesn't discriminate. So all nations except for, you know, 90 year olds and above. They're not sinners. Or they're saved in some other way. What does he say? Baptize all nations except for two years and under, because they're not—they're not sinners, or um, they're saved in another way. No, just baptism is baptism for all people. All people are sinners. All people need the washing of holy baptism. It's really simple biblical theology. Thank you for that. Yes, please. Back to believers' baptism in oh, the yeah. evangelical church. Oh yeah. You do say, though, that when they come into the Lutheran Church, if they've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. it's considered an okay baptism? Comment on that. Um, yeah, so we'll talk about believer's baptism as a phrase. When I think um, Wolf Miller brings that up in the context of infant baptism. Um, so maybe we'll kind of table that for a second. But yes, what constitutes a valid baptism? And this is this is not uniquely or specifically Lutheran. This is across the board: Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, whatever. Um, I think even to a degree the Reformed. Um, it's just the idea is: it, Were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Was there water and that formula? If so, that's a valid baptism, because again, it's God doing the doing. It's not the pastor who might be messed up in his theology or life. Um, it's not the congregation that might be messed up in their theology or life. It's uh, it's the presence of God's word without water. And in that sense, too, it's like, I mean, this is an alien thought to us, but for large periods of time in the life of the church, most baptisms have taken place outside of the church by midwives or by family in a basin or a kitchen sink because um, we're not... You're, you're talking about a time and a place where um, they're not, where births aren't happening in these sterilized hospitals with a half a dozen doctors around you and all kinds of life-saving, life-supporting equipment. And so, um, the second that baby pops out, baptize and baptize her, um, make that make that little one a child of God right away. Um, 
lest heaven forbid some tragedy should occur. So um, that's where that's where you really see it too, because it's detached from um, any kind of bishopric, any kind of formal pastoral office, any kind of congregational setting. It's just done by individual members of the body of Christ who are in that compelling circumstance and baptize. And then it's recognized by the larger church, recognized by the pastoral office. So just these are these are um, important reminders why the essence of baptism is God's word and water. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rightly understood. And uh, water. Why might we reject a, bat, a Mormon baptism? In fact, why would we reject a Mormon baptism? Because by Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they don't mean one God and three persons. They mean three gods and three persons. Or two gods and some kind of immaterial Star Wars force. Um, no, that's not a baptism into the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three gods and one person. So nobody in the Christian faith recognizes uh, Mormon's ba- Mormon baptisms, for example. So there are baptisms, even if they were to use the right formula, they're outside of the pale we would simply look at that person and say, we need to baptize you with Christian baptism. Um, what about uh, the, I'm thinking of uh, where the centurion comes and they baptize his whole household. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of his servants were adults mm-hmm. and weren't asked if they believed or wanted to be baptized or anything. That's just what the head of the household said. Yeah, I don't know. That's assuming a lot because the texts don't give us any of that information. Um, they don't give us like, you know, did, uh, did Lucius, the little child, rebel and run out the back door? I mean, we, we're just not given that. Did everyone assent? Did they give their written and full consent? Um, we're not given any of that information. What, um, because it's just not important. I think, um, I think your, your point, like it's just kind of assumed that if, if dad believes this and it's right and it's going to be taught to the family, and the family believes this, and it's right. Um, then everyone's baptized. Of course, individuals can reject that. I mean, that's. Yeah. But, but in terms of a practice, it's kind of like if I wasn't a Christian, I'm not going to like sit around and wait for my wife and children to have a, a personal decision for Jesus. I'm going to be like, I'm a Christian. We're going to church. Yeah. I mean, if my wife was like, well, I don't want to be baptized, I'd be like, well, that's odd. Okay. I guess I'm not going to force you to be baptized. I'm going to baptize my children because Christ my Lord says to. I mean, that's just how it goes. So, yeah, there's, and I mean, even even more so kind of in an ancient world context, you know. Um, I think I think what's, what's interesting in te- biblical texts like that, too, is it's not the hyperfixation on the individual like we have today. You know, did you make your own personal decision for Christ, your own personal faith? Did you get everything settled in your heart and mind? I mean, all of this is giving way too much credit to the human nature. Way too much credit. As if we're rational beings, spiritually rational beings. Um, we're not. So I, the movement of, of the gospel, the movement of God, is to just sweep it and ask questions later. And if you really insist upon rejecting, I, okay, well, I guess we'll honor that. That's odd. Why would you ever choose to reject this gift? Um, but it's, it's just kind of a powerful movement where um, the gospel comes and um, takes entire households. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yes, please. Uh, one of the chaplains um, that was here at the church uh, baptized his chi- his baby yeah. because there, he thought that was a you know there was a problem. Uh, yeah. When they did it again in church, was that a 
rebaptism or was that just a ceremony? Mm, great question. Yeah, I was here for that. Um, poor child, I won't go into the details. Since we're online, we've got to be careful about all of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was an emergency situation. It was a life or death situation. He baptized uh, his son and then and then made it known to the congregation. And so at the right, we don't rebaptize or use any water in the right, but we publicly acknowledge that baptism. We so we recite the scriptural promises that God gives, and we acknowledge that person to be a baptized member, and then we pray. Um, because that's an essential part of the baptismal rite too in the churches that we pray for the newly baptized. So, yeah, that happens from time to time. Um, same thing with like a deathbed baptism. I forget. I think I've only had one or two of those. But you, you obviously aren't going to wheel in the hospital bed with all the oxygen and nurses and everything else into the church. So you baptize there. Use a minimum of water because you don't want to make the person uncomfortable. Um, they got to sit in the water the rest of the day until the nurses change the sheets. Um, so you baptize with a very small amount of water on the deathbed, and then you announce in church the next Sunday, and everyone uh, hears this and prays for the newly baptized. Mm -hmm. um, at times in the at times in the life of the church too, it's you know baptism wasn't nearly pu the public thing that it is now. Um, many ancient churches have external baptistries, um, even if they're enclosed, they're separate from the sanctuary, and so. A baptism would take place over there, often with only a pastor or, um, uh, I guess we, we'd call them other church workers, but um, it would be either male and female helpers there. But that's it, very small group. And then um, it, was not, it was not an uncommon rite that the baptism would take place over there while everyone else was engaged in divine service, and then the newly baptized would be brought into the fellowship for the divine service. Everyone would commune together. Um, so just, uh, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to show that there's a diversity of, ecclesi uh, of ecclesiastical processes in regard to baptism. And we shouldn't think, well, just because they're done in the front of our church right now, um, that that's how they have to be done or something like that. Right? Um, again, what is at the essence of baptism is water and God's Word. And the rest is, as important as it may be, um, is secondary always to that. All right? Good enough? Okay, well, let's press on a little further, and let's actually get into um, some texts. Speaking of baptism, I just got a text. It looks like we're going to have a baptism this Sunday, so that's great. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's just drop down here to the second... Um, Well, maybe we'll just acknowledge this. Down at the bottom of 127, because we spent some time on it already, uh, Wolf Mueller shows us that the first text he really noticed was the text previously quoted, Acts 2, 38 through 39. Pentecost, Peter's inaugural sermon, everyone's cut to the heart. What shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's the first text that Wolf Mueller gives us. Um, flipping over to page 128, we'll get another text. Pastor, could yes, I please. say something real quick? Sure. I, one of the things I notice when I'm teaching doctrine, mm -hmm. and I notice that I have students who um, struggle with this, with the baptism and communion, seem to be the two hot points. Basically, 
it boils down to conversion and faith. If they don't have conversion and faith all being the work of Christ alone, then everything else becomes their work. Mm -hmm. And so from conversion and faith, if that's not correct, then baptism is going to be wrong, mm -hmm. communion is going to be wrong, and there's no comfort in any of that. Yeah, and so they, they lack that. And when he said, there's nothing you can do to be saved, no work can undo your wickedness, you know, thinking about what what the students are struggling with with that, mm -hmm. they think that salvation is their work. They, I mean, they mm -hmm. do trust that Jesus did it, mm -hmm. but it's Jesus and. Yeah. It's not Jesus alone. Yeah. And when that gets all confused, then everything else gets confused mm -hmm. in that as well. And like I said, then there's no comfort in any of that. Yeah, it's really hard to shake that free will, I made a decision for Jesus, because it, it just makes so much sense to our fallen nature. Um, it just seems rational. And it seems to give us all, a lot of space, too. Like, well, if I'm saved or damned, that's on me, not on God. And so there's this desire to kind of defend God's honor and this fear that if we go the opposite way, we're going to lose our own culpability and we're going to place that culpability on God himself. And so, I mean, there, there's kind of woven together just some fallen reason with some good intentions that kind of muddle into this mix. It's really hard to sort out until someone's willing to set all that aside and just look at the language and the nature of the scriptures and see um, how the scriptures describe what's happening as God's work and as things that we couldn't do, even if we tried to do. I mean, we're going to see in Romans 6, for example, that, bury, that baptism is to be buried with Christ. Paul doesn't say it's symbolic of being buried with Christ. He says it's being buried with Christ. Is that something I can do? <laughs> Is that something I can sit down and just, all right, all right, it's within my power to do. I'm just going to be buried with Christ right now. No, it's not within my power to do it all. Um, is it within my power? Was it within my power to be born into this world of my mom? No. Is it in my power to be born from above of water and the Holy Spirit? Here I go, I'm going to be born again. These things are so far outside of our power and ability to do that we can only rightly comprehend them as things that God does to us. And that's just thoroughgoing in every text about the scriptures. Um, it's, there are things that God does to us. Here, I'm going to clothe, I'm going to clothe myself in Jesus right now. Here we go. Here we go. Ah, the king has no clothes. How do you do this? Um, only when those garments have been given to you in holy baptism can, can you then place them on or put them on. That only because it's a gift given. So um, we see all through the scriptures thoroughgoing language um, that it is God doing the doing in baptism. So thank you for that. Yeah, and it, I think it just requires a, an accurate diagnosis and a willingness to see that in ourselves, like how we've kind of got poisoned by this decision, free will theology, which, by the way, at various times in the history of the church has been rejected outright as heresy. Um, Pelagius was the first free will guy. He's the guy that Augustine was free will until he met Pelagius. And Pelagius took free will to its logical conclusion, basically the way we've kind of done it. So if it's up to you, then you save yourself. And Augustine was like, oh, holy smokes, I got that one wrong. And gave up on free will and uh, condemned Pelagius and argued against Pelagius. It's God who saves us. Um, and then after that, you get semi-Pelagianism. Well, maybe it's just partly up to me. <laughs> and semi-Pelagianism usually goes... Um, Pelagianism goes, it's entirely up to me. Semi-Pelagianism goes, I start it and God finishes it. And then synergism goes, God starts it and I finish it. <laughs> so do you want to be Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, or synergistic? Those are all the different, that's all the different ways to slice the pie of God needs me to help him save me. 
I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, but I can help a little bit. <laughs> nope. Nope. It's like, it's like being out in the water and you lose consciousness. And there you are floating upside down in the water. And God, and God's going, okay, I'm going to throw you the life, I'm going to throw you the life ring. What are those things called? Life preserver. I'm going to throw you the life preserver. Okay. Here it comes. All right. It just slaps next to you. Okay, grab a hold of it. All you got to do is this one thing, just flop your dead arm over. Come on, I'm cheering for you. (laughs) So what does it take? It takes the Holy Spirit to dive into the water, grab that life preserver, stick it around your head, and then God to pull you in. Um, yeah, maybe you regain your senses enough to grip hold, hold a little bit, but that's hardly essential. It's already wrapped around you. And that's, that's kind of the way that salvation works. We're dead in our trespasses. Not mostly dead, not kind of alive, not floundering in the water. We're dead dead. And God has to save us um, through his word and spirit. And so he does. I was going to say, too, one of the other things they struggle with is repentance. And when it comes to repentance, it's not the act of repentance. It's the fact that they are the ones that are doing the repenting. And mm-hmm. I said, how did you get to the concept that you needed to repent? In other words, they're still saying it's all their work. Even repentance is their own work. And it's like, no, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you to bring you to repentance by bringing the word of God to you, by showing you the law where you have sinned so that the realization is you're doing something that is against God's law and you need to repent of that. You need to turn. But they still believe that it's, 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 I just came to the realization. How did that happen? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're dead in your chest. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. The guy, the guy sitting in Africa or, China or Canada, who's never heard the gospel, doesn't some doesn't just wake up and say, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and I'd like to be baptized. No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. There has to be someone to introduce you to Christ, introduce you to baptism, for you to even be able to then, you know, say, I assent. But even then, why are you going to assent? Why would you ever assent to such a thing? Only if you had been convinced. Who or what convinces you? The Word. So, yeah, your will is engaged. I have got no problem with that, but your will has to be convinced. The, the switch, the light switch already has to be turned on, right, before the light can shine. And just because the light's shining, the switch doesn't say, I did that. <laughs> there was a finger that moved you, right? Um, even when you're confessing the faith and the light of Christ is shining forth from you, you go, it was the Holy Spirit that moved me. I was once off, and now I'm on. I once did not believe, and now I believe. Praise be to God, the the Holy Spirit, the finger that flipped the light switch up, and now I'm shining, but I'm not going to, you know, my light's shining, but I'm not going to claim credit for that. Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts? We all right? All right, just um, a few minutes left, so let's hit another uh, text. So 128, um, second paragraph. Wolfmuller writes, It seemed like Peter thought baptism had something to do with Uh, Ananias thought the same thing. When Saul comes to him for shelter after the Lord knocked him down on the road to Damascus, Ananias says to him, and now why do you wait? Do you remember the story, Paul's conversion? It's knocked down, he meets the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He becomes blind, all of this. He's sent to Ananias. God says to Ananias, hey, I'm sending you Paul. You mean the guy who's been killing and imprisoning all the Christians? Please don't. (laughs) What, what have I done to anger you, God? <laughs> uh, 
All right, so Ananias then says to Paul, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It just, I mean, it doesn't get any plainer if you want to be a Bible-believing Christian. Baptism is a washing, a washing of what? Wash away your sins. Acts 22.16 is what we're quoting. Wash away your sins seems a far cry from make a public testimony of your faith. Uh, Wolfmuller continues, and we're going to get to the third text here. As I studied the biblical passage about uh, passages about baptism, this much became clear. Baptism has something to do with salvation. Text after text confirms this. Jesus, before his ascension, sends out his disciples to the world saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so we're to make disciples through these two means, baptizing and teaching. And we have the promise that Christ will remain with us to the end of the age. Okay, um, next paragraph, Wolf Miller writes, In baptism, the Lord's name is put on us. You can see that, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Lord's name is put on us. We are adopted into his family. And we put on Christ. Now, quoting from Galatians 3. But now, St. Paul writes, that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All right, so there's a language of having put on, having been clothed in Christ. And then we also see what baptism does. It makes us sons. Now, why why not sons and daughters? There's actually nothing wrong with sons and daughters. There's nothing wrong with children. But why sons? And why is that so heavily emphasized in the scriptures? Because inheritance. Uh, inheritance. Um, obviously, you're baptized into Jesus, and so you are a son because you're in him and he is the son, but also predominantly because daughters don't inherit in the ancient world. Um, so to have the inheritance is to be a son, and so that's so heavily emphasized, too, that you would be a son. Obviously, there's a connection with the capital S son, but there's also this connection with inheritance, and you will all receive the inheritance, male or female. And so there is there's this constant emphasis we find um, in regard to sonship, not just becoming a child. All right, well, we'll pick up next week with more and more scripture. We're going to look at Mark 16. We're going to look at John 3. We're going to look at Romans 6. We're going to look at Colossians 2. We're going to look at Titus 3. We're going to look at tons and tons of scriptures that have to do with baptism. And then we're going to talk about baptizing those rascally babies. Well, if you've ever had a baby, you know they need baptism sometimes. It's a good thing God made them cute. All right. The Lord be with you.